there are many different ways you could describe the importance of leadership. But for me, it's finding that sort of tension between reflection and action. I think that's the holy grail, ultimately, is to look at what we're doing, do it, but also step back occasionally and say, okay, why? So I've held on to those two kind of bookends, if you like, of leadership qualities or characteristics. And then within that, I would say, just to look at a post-it note, I keep it aside my monitor, be curious and communicate. You know, I think there are two things that are important. And I put them on a post-it note at the side of my monitor because they're not necessarily, I guess, intuitive or inherent reactions I have. So it's a reminder that if you just put something at your side, a little guidance there, you can equip yourself. You can develop in particular ways by deliberate action. This is season three of the Charity CEO podcast, the podcast for charity leaders by charity leaders. I'm Libby O'Connor, and I never imagined that this show that I started as an experiment during the pandemic would turn into a number one ranked global podcast with thousands of listeners all across the world. It is truly humbling to know that the show's content is valued by so many. And thanks to our season three sponsor, Eden Tree, I will continue to bring you inspirational and engaging conversations with a host of leaders who are all truly driving change in the non-profit space. Eden Tree themselves are owned by a charity and have led the way in responsible and sustainable investing for over three decades. Thank you to Eden Tree. Now, on with the show. My guest today is Darren Cormack, Chief Executive of the Mines Advisory Group, also known as MAG International. For over 30 years, this global humanitarian and advocacy organisation has been working to find and remove lethal landmines and unexploded bombs in places affected by conflict. Since its establishment in 1989, MAG has helped 20 million plus people in over 70 countries rebuild their lives and livelihoods after war. Darren talks about the relevance of MAG's work in a changing global context and highlights that even today, at least 15 people are being killed or injured by landmines every single day. Darren also shares his personal experiences stepping up to take the helm as CEO during the pandemic and leading a global team of over 5,000 staff from his front room. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Hi, Darren. Welcome to the show. Pleased to have you on today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, very much so. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So the tradition is to start the show with an icebreaker round. And to that end, I have five questions for you. And if you're ready, we can get started. Yep, sure. Let's give it a go. So question one, what was your first job? First job was a paper round. So I think when I was what 13 or 14, I started on a seven day a week paper round, mornings and afternoons. Did that for the mighty sum of, I think, a pound a day, if that doesn't make me sound too old. So that was my first job and taught me a lot in various different ways, which I only really appreciate now. At the time, I felt like it was a bit of a slog on a cold, wet morning. <laughs> Excellent. Well, glad to hear you're working hard for your seven pounds a week. And to continue that train of thought, as a child, what did you dream of being when you grew up? I'm sure there were lots of things in various moments, but one that stands out when your sort of boyhood dream was being a firefighter. I think there was that heroic aspect to it. But my granddad, who did a lot to raise me, was a fireman part time and obviously spent a lot of time hearing stories of him from no doubt somewhat embellished. 
as years pass, but as a firefighter. So that stands out as something that I very much aspired to be as a boy, thinking back. Excellent. And question three, and I think you know that this one is coming. What would you say is your professional superpower? Oh, I don't know if I have an exclusive superpower in any way, apart from being somewhat tall, but it doesn't help me in this role particularly. <laughs> I think a superpower in this role, if used effectively, is passion, is being passionate about what you do and applying that passion with as much authenticity as you can. I think being passionate hopefully is infectious to those around you. I think it thus creates energy. I think it creates that commitment and helps to influence culture. So very much look for people who are passionate about what we do in the organization in which we work when bringing people in and when looking to commit myself. So yeah, passion would be the one I'd go with as a superpower that I think is important. Although I do like your one about being tall and being quite tall myself. I do think that is a superpower as well. <laughs> yeah. I think it was more so, helpful on the basketball court back in the day than it is in, in uh, <laughs> sat talking into a Microsoft Teams meeting as we spend most of our time doing when uh, one site is less appreciated or less relevant, frankly. <laughs> Indeed. Question four. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing in the world right now, what would that be? Picking one thing is nigh impossible, not least given how much is going on in the world right now. But I think as I step back, one of them is something around that appreciation of empathy, the appreciation of nuance. I think too often we're seeing the world characterized in almost quite binary terms, really, and obviously amplified through media, social media. But in reality, I think very few issues can be divided into two sides. And nuance is important. I think nuance is important in everyday decision making. So trying to get to that mantra of seeking first to understand in order to be understood. I think if we could take the time, step back, think about that principle and apply it into the context in which we work or the issues in which we're observing and like to pass comment perhaps without fully understanding. So I think kind of finding a way of making the world slightly more empathetic in that way would be how I'd use that wand if I was given it. Yes, love a bit of Stephen Covey as well. And our final icebreaker question, if you had the opportunity to interview anyone in the world, dead or alive, who would it be and what one question would you like to ask them? The one question that I hadn't thought about, but the one person would be, well, I guess to make it quite personal on this front, I never knew my father. He died when I was young, about four so you get to that stage of life when you become a parent as well and you realize what the consequences are probably of facing one's mortality at that age. Yeah, I think a chance to sit down with him, I think therefore it'd be very difficult to ask one question apart from how's it going? What advice would you give to me? But having a series of kind of questions and conversations would be a great way, I think, to spend some time with somebody who is no longer alive, but obviously had an influence on me in the few years that we were together. So yeah, that would be the honest answer to that. And then it's probably all manner of statesmen and people of history that I would also love to bring to the table. But there's your one, I think, for now. Yes. And as it is your dad, I'm sure we can allow you a few more questions rather than just one. <laughs> yeah, thanks. We appreciate it. There's a few on there. <laughs> so, Darren, you are the chief executive of MAG, the Minds Advisory Group. And I'd like to start off by hearing about your organization and what it does. So, Tell us about the origin story of MAG and its vision and mission. Yeah, thank you. And it's an organization that has a proud history and a very relevant future. And you know, the Minds Advisory Group, to go way back very much to the start, was founded really and quite pertinently in the context, the remnants of the conflict in Afghanistan, where our founder, 
a gentleman called Ray McGrath, who was supported thereafter by his brother Lou, saw firsthand the effects that conflict and the remnants of conflict was having on people, seeing the scourge of landmines in Afghanistan as a result of the conflict there 30 odd years ago, and recognizing that nothing from a humanitarian perspective was really being done about that. So it's from those origins that the organization developed and it was the passionate commitment of individuals who at that time saw a need to make changes really to bring about and bring to the world's attention the plight of communities that were affected by conflict that had either recently or had long since passed and that same mantra really of serving communities who are affected by conflicts that you know they had nothing to do with directly was not a fault of theirs but are left with a devastating effect, whether it be the risks of injury, the, the risks of death, the prevention of development for livelihoods. All of those factors which we saw, you know, the organization saw firsthand there, characterize many countries and millions of people around the world. So that's how the organization was founded. And from those sort of humble, very passionate beginnings have hopefully tried to sort of stick to many of those values since its findings then. MAG went on to play an active part in campaigning for the what was ultimately the Mind Ban Treaty, International Humanitarian Law Development of Policy Positions, which ultimately had a significant effect on the way that the world worked. MAG then went on to be a co-laureate of the 1997 Nobel Peace Prize for its efforts in bringing about the prevention through the Ottawa Treaty of the manufacturing of landmines and various commitments thereafter to rectify the effects that we're seeing. So from those humble beginnings, from two brothers working from a small village in the Lake District to to where we are now, which is an organization still dealing with the historic effects of conflict, but an organization that's also adapting to reflect the new challenges that the world is presenting as a result of conflict, whether it be new use of the way explosive ordnance is used, the new use of landmines, whether it be the way that armed conflict is also presenting new risks to communities as well. So that's how we're founded. That's a very short take on how we've developed in that time and gone on to become an organization now working in, in 26 countries with around five, five and a half thousand staff and you know, and passionately committed really to, to that mission that we started all those years ago. Yes, I can see that passion is definitely a strong thread through the work there. And I understand that Princess Diana was involved in the early days and certainly I believe her influence was part of the signing of the Mind Ban Treaty that you mentioned there. How did her engagement impact the organisation and its profile? Well, she did an enormous amount in her time, but particularly towards the end of her life, sadly, was in raising, bringing to sort of the awareness of the public, the fact that this was not a forgotten and historic issue. There is that iconic image of her walking through minefields, cleared minefields in Angola, where that brought a huge amount of focus to the issue, to a context where the conflict had since passed, but the remnants of those conflicts still remain, still threaten lives and livelihoods. And I think it was that awareness that it brought out, you know, the public appeal that obviously she had as an individual did a huge amount for the sector and a huge amount for those organizations working on the issue. And and that legacy continues. Those images continue to resonate. They continue to have that public effect. And that was a major contribution and, and something that we as MAG and the contribution we make to the sector is to continue to champion and highlight the needs of communities to the public, to decision makers, to governments that 
60 million people continue to be at risk as a result of landmines. Millions of people are at risk of the use of small arms and light weapons in conflicts. And images and moments like that are really important to the journey that we're on. And talking about legacy, Prince Harry, of course, followed in his mother's footsteps and was involved in the landmine-free 2025 campaign. Can you tell us what that campaign is looking to achieve in the current context? So it was a campaign launch, really, as a result of collaboration and the attention he helped to bring back in 2018 at an event that we hosted in collaboration with our partners at the Halo Trust. And it was a great moment, really, to just, again, reinvigorate that sort of awareness of the needs of communities around the world affected by landmines. And ultimately, we launched this vision of a landmine-free 2025, which was you know, an effort to draw attention to commitments that governments had already made through international humanitarian law and, and the adaptations of that to commit to a deadline, a vision of a world free of landmines by 2025. And inevitably, the scale of the problem, the changes and the rises of new types of conflict mean that it very much is a, an aspiration to which, you know, we're committed. But as principal pragmatists, we recognize it was a call to action, which we'd love to see delivered on, but recognize there are many challenges to that. Prince Harry, who, as I said, did a lot and has continued to do a lot in different ways to highlight the needs of communities affected by landmines, again, brought that focus, that renewed energy that we have as a sector have sought to harness in drawing the world's attention to communities that are impacted. It's incredible when you think of the current state of affairs, particularly in Afghanistan. We've just had news this week that the Taliban have taken over there, that conflict still reigns supreme in some ways across so many communities. And therefore, the issue of landmines, mine devices is as relevant in current day as it was 30 years ago when MAG was started. And I know that there was a recent BBC documentary featuring a young Yazidi woman working with yourselves in Iraq to help clear the IEDs laid there by ISIS. And I'm interested to hear, Darren, whether you think that the issue has changed over the years, and if indeed it has in the current global context, if you could give us your thoughts and views on that. It certainly has. And the legacies of conflict long since past remain, no question. So you quite rightly raised, particularly given the week in which we're recording this, the events we're seeing unfold in Afghanistan, a country, probably one of the most affected countries in the world by the legacy of conflicts from 30 years ago. And that reminds us, you know, in contexts like Afghanistan or Laos in Southeast Asia, which since the end of the Vietnam War remains one of the most contaminated countries in the world when it comes to the effects of conflict. You know, you still got that historic issue in many countries, a historic issue where relentless focus and funding is required in order to realize that vision of communities being safe, being able to prosper, being able to use land which can enable and sustain economic development in some of the poorest countries in the world. But then we're also seeing, particularly across contexts like the Middle East and the Sahel region and parts of you know Eastern Africa, we're seeing the changing nature of conflicts, asymmetric forms of conflicts, rises in types of conflict around insurgency and the urbanization of conflicts. And they present different challenges, challenges that require adaptations and innovation in how one works, changes in, in operating environments. But again, it still presents ultimately risks of victim-activated improvised landmines, however they're characterized, to communities, communities who are trying to collect firewood because 
but they're more at risk because they've been displaced by conflict into a, a new area they're less familiar with. Children go off to explore, collect firewood from camps in which they have been displaced too. And so there are new types of risks that people in communities are faced with as a result of a changing nature of conflict. So you know, MAG is positioning itself, same respect to the Sahel and West Africa, where we're working in a number of countries to provide different types of risk education different types of partnerships in order to bring about the prevention of conflict in certain contexts, but also to help communities who are unfamiliar with the risks in which they're now facing with the awareness that they need. So yeah, that's how it's becoming a very current issue. And I think as we look forward a bit further, we're seeing as conflict develops, the need to to equip communities in different ways. So two or three months ago, we saw an unplanned explosion in Equatorial Guinea in, in Africa. And MAG was able to develop remote risk education tools that were used on social media to target communities in a certain radius of a blast site, which had thrown out unexploded ordnance, which was a risk to people. And just being able to develop without ever actually putting people on the ground, given the logistical challenges at the time, tools and mechanisms to help communities, again, shows that how risks are changing potentially, but also how new programming and innovation develops in, in respect to those changes as well. So they're just some of the things that we're starting to think through as an organization as the world around us sort of continues to, to throw up new challenges, shall we say. Yes, it's really interesting to hear those examples of the adaptations that MAG is putting in place in order to deal with the changing nature of conflict, but keeping the awareness of the needs of the communities at the heart of what you do. And talking about the current context, obviously, Darren, with 5,000 staff, as you mentioned, across 25 countries in the world, undoubtedly, the pandemic must have had a massive impact on the organizations and your program delivery. And I'd like to explore with you, perhaps, how you as an organization and more broadly charity leaders can emerge from the pandemic in a way that really enables our organization to thrive in a new environment, taking on board these new challenges and changing nature of the environment around us, as well as new sort of working practices and expectations internally in terms of staff and engagement with stakeholders. And specifically, Darren, I know that you took over as chief executive of MAG during the pandemic, which must have been some challenge indeed. And I'd like to ask, what are some of the lessons that you perhaps have learned over the last year? Thankfully, I was not unfamiliar with MAG. I've been with MAG for, for 12 or 13 years. But yeah, I took over as CEO in May. So we were, I guess, four or five weeks into you know the real effects of the pandemic. And yeah, there's still a huge amount of uncertainty, really, from what is the world going to look like as a result of you know the unknowns that we were facing ultimately. And it's easy to forget quite how uncertain things were back in that point in time last year. I mean, in terms of the broad lessons learned characterize that and then happy to kind of talk a bit more specifics. But I think communicating authentically really about where we're at as an organization was critical. So interestingly, part of our ability to build a platform where we could communicate widely across the organization was enabled by that transition that had to happen to virtual ways of working. So we had spurred by the pandemic means to communicate more widely, taking over very much kind of committed to ensuring open, regular, authentic communication about where the organization was at as a result of the risks that were being generated through COVID. And 
It took a principal really in that respect to say to staff in many different ways through weekly staff meetings and videos to staff at the end of the week and open letters to staff that, you know, we will tell you what's going on. And if we don't tell you what's going on, it's because either we don't know or we can't tell you. And if we can't tell you, there'll be a really good reason we can't tell you. And that's sometimes just life. But ultimately, there'll be a commitment to authentic, transparent leadership and communication. So if there are unknowns, you know that we equally don't know what the answers are in that respect. And I think people, I hope, recognize that there was a commitment and a real shift to building a collaborative culture based on effective internal communication throughout the pandemic, but also one that we intend to sustain, to, to answer your other question about what have we learned. It's about the critical importance of communication and harnessing technology in a way that enables us. I think the second point, though, was to also recognize that MAG as a global organization, how I, I guess, as CEO in the context of this podcast, was experiencing COVID, sat in you know suburban South Manchester, and whilst there was a lot of change happening for me, that was just, I couldn't let a perspective be too informed by that local context and understanding that what was happening here might not be how it felt in Southeast Asia or Southern Africa or Latin America. And equally now, as we're in a situation where it's a slightly more linear positively linear, I guess, movement in how we're coming out of COVID in the UK, that isn't the same in other countries as a result of vaccine rollout issues, as a result of the spread of the Delta variant. And again, continuing to put oneself in another person's shoes to see how must it feel if you are locked down again in Phnom Penh or wherever you might be around the world, that it will feel very different and taking that into account in how the organisation communicates has always been critical. So push to kind of not be too informed by that close proximity really of how COVID felt was really key, I think, to me staying the course in, in some of the commitments that we've made as an organization. And looking back on the past 12 months or so, Darren, and given what you now know, might you have done anything differently at the beginning of the pandemic? I don't know, really. I think it's easy in hindsight to say, yeah, I'd have done X or Y differently. But the reality is that there were so many people facing that same unknowns and no one had been here before in several generations when facing a global pandemic in that issue. So I think in respect to how we handle COVID, I think I'm very proud of how the organization responded, the tenacity to sort of stay the course. We we kind of set three principles, really, I guess, in responding to the COVID pandemic. One was ensuring the duty of care for staff. First and foremost, you know, we are charged with the responsibility of protecting our staff and ensuring that they are safe, uh, accounted for, supported was the first commitment. And I'm sure there might be moments of exception, but ultimately took decisions based on ensuring that duty of care first and foremost. But the second was then getting back to focusing on the communities who we are responsible for serving, you know, people affected by conflict, people who need our help, for whom we have accumulated 30 years of experience to assist. So staying focused and staying mission focused on communities was a second principle and one that we sought to live out and getting back to work as quickly and as safely and as innovatively as possible in respect to adapting to how COVID was, was affecting communities and the ways of working. And thirdly was then building a more sustainable mag was ensuring that whatever the decisions we were taking now would not be short term that, and that continues to characterize the decisions we're making on ways of working. You know, it's easy to sort of 
set out policies now as we are at this point in the year, but have tried to not rush really in terms of that return to work issue or whatever it might be for at least UK staff to let that dominate too much of our thinking. So there's some of the things that we try to do in response and as broad principles, maybe there's bits and pieces we might have done differently, but as broad principles, I felt like they have stayed the course and have been have been effective ultimately in responding to the pandemic. I think as leaders of organisations, part of our role and indeed the challenge in many ways is the need to take decisions based on imperfect information. And I like how you've laid out essentially those principles that give you a framework for making those decisions in terms of duty of care, staying mission focused and building a more sustainable organisation longer term. And talking to that third principle there, Darren, I saw that you had recently written a blog for Civil Society in which you talk about wanting MAG to be a more values-driven organisation. Can you tell us a bit more about what that means for you? Just after this, I'm straight into a two-hour workshop on that as part of the process of reviewing our values. And this was one of the commitments that you know, I made on day one in taking over that sort of first morning, I did a kind of live address to staff and then recorded piece for staff and, and wrote to staff, just really trying to outline three things I wanted to do in taking over as a CEO and wanted Mag to focus on. And one was staying mission focused, which characterized our COVID response, but should characterize everything we do. And But that needed to be supported by a clearer strategy. So we undertook a midterm review of strategy that we completed at the end of last year. The second was being more values-driven as an organization. And the third was then building a culture of collaboration that our full potential would be realized by building a culture of collaboration within the organization aided through effective internal communications. So to that second point on, on values, I've been in MAG a long time and I know almost the intangible things that I guess I'm in love with in the organization that I'm passionate about that represent MAG at its best, but they weren't necessarily reconcilable with the six values that we had written in a strategy maybe five years ago. And they weren't really brought to life with frameworks that help people understand what does this mean. So I knew that there was a need to reconcile MAG at its best and what that feels like and the passion, you know, what are the words people use when they talk passionately about MAG with what we had written. And so commissioned a process to review that, which is very much ongoing. There's so many things you can change at once, especially during a pandemic. So we're very much in the midst right now of reviewing our values to to create an updated version of values that will drive us through decisions, through difficult times that will reflect the bedrock that we'll need for the next five years as we start to think about a new strategy for 2023 through to 2028. So I wanted to reconcile those two points, really, what we had versus what we needed informed by the best of MAG and harnessing those thoughts from a range of people across the organization. That's the bit that's happening today is is part of, uh, I hope, an inclusive conversation across MAG about, about our values and who we want to be and how they are expressed. Ongoing work. <laughs> Indeed. Last month, I spoke at an Akiva event where the topic of discussion was around how we can bring to life principles around diversity and inclusion in leadership. And for me personally, this is always to do with representation and role modeling. And of course, values are always demonstrated or represented through behaviors. And one of my fellow panelists made a really insightful point that the culture of an organization is shaped not just by the positive behaviors modeled by the CEO, but almost more so by the worst behaviors that the CEO is willing to tolerate. 
And mm. in this context, what does equity, diversity and inclusion mean for you personally? And can you give us some examples of what you're doing in that space? I mean, it's been a, a very live and relevant issue in the organization, you know, and again, another point I've reflected on as I sort of marked my first year in the role was, I guess, the challenges of what, you know, an authentic, open, safe conversation around these issues really looks like in an organization. So sitting here as a getting towards probably middle-aged white man in leading the sector, you know, how does one have and create the space for an authentic conversation around these issues in an organization, whilst also delivering on all of the day-to-day commitments as well. And that's been a really hard challenge. And again, one we've just tried to take on openly. What we've been trying to do at MAG over the last 12 months is to create, and this is still ongoing because change takes time, a space for open dialogue about what different people have felt and feel in the organization around these issues. And you know, my job has been to create an environment and create a space and create a focus that these conversations can happen. I think one of the things that a CEO can do is convene. You have the authority to convene the spaces in which conversations should happen, the ability to convene resources, convene management attention. So they're the levers you've got. And into that space, you then bring in expertise to help inform how conversations must happen. So again, another key strategic initiative that we're very much in the middle of right now is our conversation on equality, diversity and inclusion in the organization. And we've sought to engage, you know, perspectives from around MAG. That has been very ably and and helpfully guided by a diversity and inclusion steering group from a range of kind of backgrounds and levels and cultures in the organization who have been part of that steering group to help me and management think through these issues and how to use that convening effect that we've got. So that's been really important over the last 12 months. And we've made commitments as an organization to improve how the diversity with which MAG is led and hopefully commitments we're starting to deliver on. But as ever, it's a starting point because there's much work to be done. So there's some of the things that I've sought to use the influence I have in the organization and to be open about what I don't know as a result of the biases and privileges that I have have in life and acknowledge that really and hopefully be open enough where people feel like saying, you know what, Darren, that probably wasn't quite right. You know, the conversation should be having is this and people feel like they can approach you rather than sort of just going with what you say. I mean, that's the last thing we really want here is me assuming I know the answers to these important issues because we don't really, but together we can find a way forward with it. And that's what we're trying to do, I think, here, Mag. I really like what you reflected there, Darren, about what does an authentic conversation in this space look and feel like? And indeed, that the role of the CEO is to create the space for open dialogue. And perhaps one of the superpowers for a chief executive in any organization should be around the convening of resources and attention to really mission critical issues across the board. And talking about leadership, Darren, I'd love now to hear a bit more about your own background and your career journey. And how have you gotten to where you are today? Yeah, there is a bit of a journey, I guess, between that paper round and where we are now for me. And I've always had a preoccupation with international issues and not quite sure what really has sort of driven that because generally from a family that never really kind of went that far from the village in which it was 
born into. So that's always curious. Maybe one of those conversations I would have with my dad if we if we were able to use that magic wand that you offered earlier. But essentially, I guess upon leaving university, found myself with the responsibility of volunteering on a project that sought to better understand the biodiversity of the Cardamom Mountains in southwest Cambodia. So again, that opportunity came about because just through relationships and through networks. And I think that has been a key learning point for me throughout my career has been, it's just the ability to build relationships, to engage with people and stakeholders is so critical in every walk of life ultimately. But as a result of that, I found, I washed up in Cambodia working with Conservation International on a project that sought to better understand whether there were any tigers left in that part of Southwest Cambodia. We did find a relative abundance of Siamese crocodiles as a result of many weeks spent out trekking through the jungles of that part of the world, sleeping in hammocks and various other things that I probably wouldn't do now 20 years on. But that was how the adventure began for me. And I think once you start finding your way into that world of, of a sector working internationally, you just make the most of it and stay in touch with people. So I did that for, I guess, on and off, maybe nine months a year working in that region. And then I went on to count parrots in the Philippines for a PhD student who I'd gotten to know over a beer in Manchester. So I ended up going out there and spending several months again, living out in the wilds of a remote part of the Philippines, trying to count parrots for his study. And yeah, jumping ahead from there, did a couple of years in private sector consultancy here in the UK on, on issues of environmental management. and. So working in a, a small private sector startup was a fascinating couple of years to understand some key kind of professional disciplines around working hard, the importance of delivering quality products, just the, the pace of a startup. But it wasn't international enough for me. And that was where my heart lay and joined Tier Fund and spent several years with Tier Fund in South Sudan, Darfur at a particularly tricky time in 2005, 2006 in Darfur when the conflict was raging there before then moving to Indonesia for two years to help with the reconstruction in Aceh province after the tsunami. So found myself responsible for a large team building houses, schools, clinics, and various other large kind of projects around livelihoods, reconstruction work in, in Aceh province. So a really interesting kind of best part of a decade living and working internationally. And then I joined MAG in 2008 and Certainly the rest is not history because it was a brilliant 12 years working for MAG and it's a humbling privilege to have ended up as CEO here at MAG, an organisation that I'm very passionate about and committed to. So to have the opportunity to step up as CEO 12-ish months ago was, well, it's been incredible, really, not without challenges, but it's a real privilege to have this responsibility of, of helping to guide MAG in the way that we're trying to. It's so fascinating to me talking to all of the guests on this podcast to really understand and hear about the different routes to leadership. And I must say, Darren, I've never had one before that was essentially paper round and crocodiles, parrots, leading to a startup and international development uh, and bringing you to MAG. So really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, there was a, there's a few moments in there. It's only when you sort of step back occasionally and put it all together like that, you think actually it's a bit of a reminder that it's never a 
a linear journey, but it's the fact that it's not linear that makes it really enriching and interesting. And it never seems like that when you're playing it forward, but when you're playing it back, it all makes sense a little bit more. And there's probably something in that as well. But yeah, yeah, there's a few moments in there which were quite interesting, uh, particularly in the early days. Absolutely. And looking back at your leadership journey, what advice would you give to yourself on day one of first stepping into a leadership role? Find that space to reflect, I think, has been key. Certainly in those, my tendency is probably to being somebody who's quite action orientated, getting things done. And I think that has been enormously helpful, really, in, in moving issues forward, whether it be within an organization, whether it be within the ambitions I have from a career perspective to find a way into international development or find a way into working internationally. That took, at times, a lot of tenacity, a lot of phone calls or emails that you know were going unanswered but keeping up with it because you knew where you wanted to get and had the work ethic to eventually get there so i think there's an enormous amount of importance of being action orientated and being proactive and having the energy to get things done that characterizes well important qualities for a leader but i think you have to punctuate that with the space to reflect there are many different ways you could describe the importance of leadership. But for me, it's finding that sort of tension between reflection and action. I think that's the holy grail, ultimately, is to look at what we're doing, do it, but also step back occasionally and say, OK, why? So I've held on to those two kind of bookends, if you like, of leadership qualities or characteristics. And then within that, I would say, just to look at a post-it note, I keep it aside my monitor, be curious and communicate. You know, I think there are two things that are important. And I put them on a post-it note at the side of my monitor because they're not necessarily, I guess, intuitive or inherent reactions I have. So it's a reminder that if you just put something at your side, a little guidance there, you can equip yourself. You can develop in particular ways by deliberate action. So I stick those things there to remember, okay, be curious in this meeting or, or find a way into that meeting so your curiosity can be satisfied. And so I find myself kind of particularly enabled by these virtual worlds of washing up in a senior management team meeting in Laos to say hello and just listen to what's going on. And I think that satisfies a bit of a curiosity there, which I've tried to keep focused on into year two. There's some of the things that I would probably kind of advise myself back in the day. Yeah, so they come to mind. I love that. Taking deliberate action punctuated with the space to reflect. And coming back now to talk about Mag, Darren, what would you say is most inspiring about being the CEO of the organization? I think you referred to the documentary that we've recently had shown on the BBC about just the life-changing effects that working for Mag can have for people, both because of what we do. You know, we ultimately do work, which in many ways is very tangible. You know, we can remove a landmine that enables somebody to increase their their harvest production and, and get them off the breadline in a certain country or to give the parent the confidence to let their child play out and go and play football without wondering, oh no, if that ball runs astray and into a, an area that they're un, unsure about, what does that mean? How does that release somebody really from the anguish and the fear of living in a community like that? And so we make very tangible impacts on people's lives in that way. Hopefully through working for MAG, we empower staff to feel like they're making a difference in their communities, but give them the sense of confidence and purpose in themselves, as we've seen. And that's a big part of how we're pushing ourselves to improve the inclusive employment in MAG. So, you know, if you've seen the case of Amsha, she feels very passionate about what she does and confident in herself as a result of their experiences of working with MAG. So, so there's some of the moments of real pride when you hear those issues play back. And every week we have a, a staff meeting, which you virtually 
we're able to bring more and more people to it. And we have a, an international comms manager who's been with MAG for a long time and takes these great pictures and has these stories. And his job is to go out there and sort of understand, you know, and learn from what's going on in the world and play that back for audiences. And by and large, he has the last word in the meeting. We kind of give over that last agenda item in these half-hour meetings where he puts up a picture and tells a story about that picture, about the community we helped. So he has that last word. And it's a chance to remind everybody on a weekly basis why we do what we do and how everybody contributes ultimately to the impact that we're having on somebody out in Iraq or in Mali or wherever we might be talking about in that week. So they're the moments of pride and we just try and infuse them into the organization regularly so everybody feels that sense of pride and purpose in who we are so that's some of the things that we do and some of the ways that i feel proud immensely proud to be the ceo of this this great organization well darren this has been such an inspiring discussion and i love the example you gave there of actually taking deliberate action to create or carve out that moment of inspiration by deliberately talking about that picture and that person that you are there as an organization to serve and those communities. And in closing now, Darren, do you have any final thoughts or reflections that you would like to share? I mean, what is one thing that you'd like our listeners to take away from this conversation? The importance of curiosity. I think if you can harness that kind of curiosity, I think life becomes a really rich experience. And I'm actually in the middle of being on leave at the minute, but I'm very happy to be here today in that break, but actually spending a bit of time just sat away from the day job reading a book, albeit with three kids and that was limited to about seven seconds but it was a reminder that actually reading widely staying curious on issues is enriching in itself as well as being a really important attribute I think in leadership because if you only listen to those people around you immediately that only gives you a limited perspective and I think as a leader of an an entire organization you have to have as broad a perspective on what's going on as, as you can be So staying curious actually is a really interesting way of exploring and delivering on that responsibility. So that's one thing that comes to mind without any particular homework on that question. (laughs) Well, thank you, Darren. That was so inspiring and great to hear. And I loved all of your stories. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show and sharing your perspectives. One of the greatest joys of being a non-profit leader is the knowledge and recognition of the tangible impact on people's lives that our work has. I loved what Darren said about the importance of staying curious in order to keep enriching our own leadership abilities and thereby deliver on our responsibilities. And so, whatever we are seeking to achieve in life, I would encourage us all to be curious, take deliberate action, and possibly, most important of all, create the space to reflect. I hope you enjoyed this latest episode of the Charity CEO Podcast, a show that, thanks to you, our listeners, has repeatedly reached the number one spot in Apple's non-profit podcast category. If you found this conversation valuable, please help spread the word. Share or tag us on Twitter or LinkedIn or Instagram, and make sure you subscribe to the show by clicking the subscribe button on your podcast app. And if you're feeling inspired or uplifted by what you have just heard, please share the joy by leaving us a five-star review visit our website, thecharityceo.com, for full show details, information on past season guests, and to submit ideas for future guests. Thanks again to our Season 3 sponsor, Eden Tree, and thank you for continuing to listen.